What a salvation you have given us, our Father. And as we come to this passage this morning, it is a reminder that this salvation is your salvation for us. It is not our salvation for ourselves, but is your gift to us. And it is such a precious gift because it took all of the work of the Trinity to accomplish it and keep us in it. And having been executed on our behalf, we are secure in it. Oh, Father, would, would these truths be a joy to us this morning? Would these truths be a comfort to us this morning as we contemplate the security of our salvation because of the one who keeps us. As we plumb the depths of your salvation, would you give us minds to understand and ears of our hearts to receive and delight in this truth that is being exposed to us. We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. In his book, The God Who Is There, D.A. Carson identifies at least three needs for man to have salvation. We, we need to be, need to have salvation, he says, in order to be reconciled to God. So sin has created a barrier between us and God that must be broken down in order for us to get to God. Secondly, we, we need to be morally transformed or we will continue to rebel against God in our sin again and again. And thirdly, we need salvation so that the effect of sin will be reversed and overcome, particularly in relationship to death. Otherwise, death, he says, just keeps on winning. In our decaying universe, there is still betrayal and disappointment and pain and sorrow and death, and all that needs to be overcome by some means of salvation. The question is, where will this salvation come from that will overwhelm these three particular needs and these particular dilemmas. To be reconciled to God, our first need, many just assume that their sin is not so bad so that, so that God can just kind of overlook it and forget about it. So, so it's not as bad as other people or it's not as bad as it was and it's getting better and, and maybe God just kind of overlooks it and kind of you know, casts a blind eye to it or winks at it and it, and it goes away forgetting that God is a righteous God and a just God, and He must execute justice on sin. To be morally transformed, our second dilemma, the vast majority of humanity tries a a self-improvement program that they believe will enable them to do good and be acceptable to God. The sense is that I just need more good than bad, and, and more good than bad is good enough. Although they are ignorant of the fact of Romans chapter 3, that no man can do any good at any time before his salvation in Jesus Christ. To the third problem about death, many embrace medical advances and fitness programs and diet plans in the, in the attempt to forestall death. And I'm, I'm all for, you know, being careful with what we eat and exercising and all that, but I, I am in my sixth decade on this earth and there is something looming that is telling me death is not going to be forestalled for much longer. I hate to say it, but I'm probably in the last third of life. And and before you laugh, some of you are too. (laughs) And what we thought at 30, we could, you know, just kind of, we can push it back at 
50 and 60 and 70, you're saying there's something coming and I can't stop it. So where will we get our salvation? All mankind needs salvation and virtually all mankind has bet on himself to save himself. And he cannot do it. So where will it come from? How will man be saved? Man will never save himself but God. God will save him. That's the message of one of the most comforting, encouraging, and favorite verses in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Let me draw your attention to that verse now. We're, verse 30 is actually the, the core of what we want to say, but let me draw your attention back to verse 29 because it actually begins in verse 29, what he says in verse 30. Romans 8, 28, or excuse me, Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom He, God, foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. And Paul's message in these two verses is really quite simple. It is a reminder that our salvation is God's work of salvation. Our, our salvation is not something that we accomplish on our own. Our salvation is not something that we do on our own. Our salvation, in a very real sense, is God's salvation. It is His work. And in fact, this, this entire passage, all these two verses, if you go back to verse 28, all three verses are explicitly about God and focused on God and it is looking at salvation through His eyes, through the lens of His glasses, as it were. As one commentator has said, He is designing, engineering, and accomplishing His salvific purpose in the earth quite apart from the interference and influence of men and women. This is God's salvation. And how is it that God has saved us? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us that God has saved us with a chain of five golden links. These are not the only things that God has done for us in our salvation, but, but they are at the core and center of what God has done to accomplish and bring about our salvation. They are His preeminent actions to, to bring about our salvation The first of the links in this golden chain is given to us in verse 29, and it is simply that God foreknew us to salvation. God foreknew us to salvation. The the first link in the chain of salvation is one that we could say began long ages ago, as the Scripture often says it, in the inner Trinitarian conversations of the Godhead. Specifically, Paul says that, verse 29, that God foreknew us for those whom He foreknew. Now the question is, what, when, when Paul says God knew something about us ahead of time, what, is that, what does that mean? Now, now the word can mean simply what it sounds like. It means that, that God knew something ahead of time. So it's used in that sense in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. The Apostle Peter says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness. So, so you have a body of truth that you have already known. And because of that, that should influence the way you act in the future. So, so you've known about something ahead of time. 
And so some suggest, well, God, God has simply looked into the future and he has known those who would belong to him and, and so he has set his love on them. But, but there's a sense and, 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 and that, that is, that is true in some senses in which that word is used in the New Testament, but, but by and large, it has a different sense as well. When, when the word foreknowledge is used with God as the subject in the New Testament, it has the sense that God has entered into a relationship beforehand or God has chosen or determined something beforehand in relation to our salvation. In a very real sense, it has, it has the same sense as knowing has in the Old Testament. So there's an intimacy and a fellowship and a design and a purpose. So come with me. Keep your finger in Romans chapter 8. We're going to move around a little bit this morning. But come with me to the book of Jeremiah, one of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah chapter 1. And in verse 4, the prophet is going to talk about his calling to his prophetic ministry. And it comes through the word of God. So he says, Jeremiah 1 verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So there's a sense in which you might look at that and say, Well, he simply, God simply knew about Jeremiah. But even there, as we're thinking about, well, God knew who Jeremiah would be. God knew that Jeremiah would be formed in a particular way. God knew that Jeremiah would serve him as a prophet. But, but even in that phrase, notice he says, before I formed you, I made you, I designed you, I purposed you, I, I knew you. Then, then notice what else he says, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And there are three verbs that are in parallel in that verse. I knew you, I consecrated you, I appointed you. And they all point to the fact that God is particularly making a design and purpose for Jeremiah. He knows him, not in the sense of an awareness of his existence, but he knows him in the sense of designing, planning, and purposing for him his prophetic ministry. He has moved him to that ministry. Uh, Move forward in your Bible towards the New Testament to the minor prophets, to the book of Amos. So from Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then the minor prophets start, Hosea, Joel, Amos. If your Bible's like mine, it's page 1291. (laughs) I hope it helps. I'm not sure it will. Amos chapter 3. Verse 2, speaking about God's choice of the nation of Israel. And Israel had rebelled against him and rebelled against what God had called them to do. And notice what he says about Israel's rebellion. You only I have chosen from all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. The word that I, I read which is the way my Bible is translated, chosen, is our word no. So 
You only I have known among all the families of the earth. So in other words, I knew all the different nations and all the people in all of the earth and out of them I have particularly known you in a special way that really is rendered best by the way my Bible has translated it. I have chosen you. You you are related to me in a very particular way with a, a level of intimacy and fellowship that is different from the way I know the rest of the world. In fact, the, uh, Moses uses that term in the very same way in relation to to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, where God says about Abraham, Genesis 18:19, for I have chosen him. That's the same word, no. I have known him or chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So, so I have chosen out of all the people of the earth, set my designs particularly on Abraham, identified him and known him, cultivated a fellowship and relationship with him in a very particular way. So this Old Testament sense of knowledge that, that there's intimacy and relationship and fellowship is part of what's being seen in this, in this word, I have foreknown you. And that, that is, moves over into the New Testament. Let's uh, look for just a moment, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to see this word foreknowledge, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. So Peter's talking to those believers who have been scattered in lots of different places, and lots of different locations. And he says about them, you're scattered, verse 1, I'm writing to you who are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. And so... That word foreknowledge, verse 2, is the same word that we see in Romans chapter 8. And you might read that and say, well, God just, God just knew ahead of time who would trust in Him, and knowing who would trust Him, He chose them. Except, look down at verse 20. Verse 2 is the noun of this word. Verse 20 is the verb, same word. Speaking about Jesus Christ, for He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. In other words, there was an inner Trinitarian conversation in which the Father and the Son and the Spirit worked together in the eternity past to design a plan of salvation. And part of that design was the foreknowledge of Christ to come to earth to accomplish our salvation. That wasn't just God knowing that Jesus would do that, but it was God designing and purposing Christ to accomplish that. And the same foreknowledge that God has of Christ's redemptive work, He has that same foreknowledge of our redemption in verse 2. He has chosen us according to His foreknowledge, His plan and His purpose and His design. 
come back to the book of Romans. If you have your finger in Romans chapter 8, go back to Romans 8 and then forward just a couple of chapters to chapter 11. And we're going to see the same thing in chapter 11. God, he says, speaking about the nation of Israel, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He knew them. He planned them. He chose them to be His people. And they are His forever people. And He will not reject them. He has known them. And He cannot reject them. In fact, look down at verse 5. In the same way, there also has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. This foreknowledge is a manifestation of God's gracious choosing of those who would be His. He is in intimate fellowship with them. And friend, He cannot lose those who are His. What we should see from this term, foreknowledge, is that God's foreknowledge of us to salvation is an expression of love. We did not come to God as accidental children. We did not come to God as luck, by luck of the draw as in, well, I have this plan of redemption and look at who came to trust in Jesus. I would have never thought. No, 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 friend. In eternity past, He has set His love on you. His love is an eternal love, not just an eternal forward love. It's an eternal backward love by which He has chosen you to be His. He has covenanted to love us in eternity past and He will keep us in that love. I find helpful what Tim Keller says in his commentary on Romans. He says, in the Bible, when we are told that God knows someone, it means He has set His love on him in a personal way. For instance, when Jesus says to some, I never knew you, it doesn't mean He won't know about them, but that He will have no relationship with them. Therefore, for no means for love. We have been loved ahead of time by God. Now, this theological truth about the love of God is is a favorite doctrine of unbelievers. If there's one doctrine that an unbeliever says, I love that truth about God, it is God is love. And because God is love, then, then God will withhold His wrath from me because He's love. He can't be an angry God. He won't, he won't pour out His wrath. He won't judge my sin. I'm okay. I'll avoid condemnation. But here's the real force of God's love. When we were despicable sinners, when we hated Him, He loved us and He chose us to be His own. You know Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We sinned and we were by nature sinners. We were by nature in rebellion against God and, and in that state of rebellion, Christ died for us. Verse 10, same chapter 4. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Not only were we, were we sinners, but we were enemies against Him. And in that state of being His enemy, He set His love on us so that we might be His. Remember, this, this whole chapter 
is about the process of sanctification, right? So it's part of this extended section, Romans 5 to 8, is about how we, how we are sanctified in our salvation. And it's about the work of the Spirit of God to produce sanctification in us. But, but there's something else that's going on in this chapter that, that comes alongside the sanctification process. And this chapter is not just about sanctification, but is it, it is about assurance for those who are being sanctified. So consider verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're, if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. You have assurance. Verse 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. You you have assurance. If the Spirit of God is in you, you're safe. If Christ is in you, verse 10, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If you have Christ, you have His righteousness, and your body is alive. Verse 15, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, by which you have received a spirit of, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, I'm adopted. And the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children of God, we will never cease to be children of God. We're safe, we're secure, we're assured. And all these things, what shall we say to these things? Verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? Oh friend, if, if God has set His love on you as His Son, the point that Paul is making is you are safe in His arms. This is a this is a word of loving commitment, his foreknowledge of us. While our love may fail on occasion, the love of the Father never can. When God says that we are foreknown by God, hear that as a believer in Christ you were so loved by God that he knew you as his own in the eternal past. He knows you and has eternally set his love on you even in the present and he will never lose you. Hear the word foreknowledge as a word of love and a word of security. There's a second link in this golden chain It is that God has predestined us to salvation. Verse 29, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Like like the word foreknowledge that is used only seven times in the New Testament, this is also a rare word. It only appears six times in the New Testament. But unlike foreknowledge, the the meaning of this word is quite clear. It means to destine something ahead of time. So prepare something ahead of time, determine something ahead of time. One dictionary explains it this way. The omniscient God has determined everything in advance, both persons and things in salvation history with Jesus Christ as the goal. This word predestination emphasizes the plan and the purpose of God in moving mankind and moving believers to salvation. And, and this salvation to which He has moved us is moving us in a very particular way. Notice He says in verse 29, He's moving us, predestining us to be conformed to the image of His Son, not only so that we would be justified, but that we would also be sanctified in Jesus Christ, looking like Jesus Christ so that, so that Christ is preeminent in our lives that he is the firstborn among all the brothers and and my friends it must be that God has determined this it must be that God has planned this it must be that God has prepared this because apart from that you would never choose him 
your heart is desperately inclined away from Him. Remember chapter 3, verse 11? There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Everyone is running away from God. Everyone apart from Jesus Christ is embracing only what He wants and and even their pursuits of doing good things and wanting to do good things is in some sense a running away from God so that they can have a God after their own fashion and after their own likeness. No one seeks for God. This is good news for us that He has predestined us because not only... Not only has He brought us into relationship with Him, so, so we were His enemies, we were sinners, and He brought us into relationship with Him and He has made us His slaves. And we saw that in chapter 6. We're, we're slaves to righteousness, so, so we belong to Him as slaves. But, but friend, it gets even better than that. Remember what it said in Ephesians chapter 5, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5? In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. So not only do we come to Him as those who are enslaved to Him, but we also, we who were His enemies, we who were sinners, are now adopted into the family. He says, come into my household, you who hated me, and let let me make you my son. And not only that, but notice verse 11, and we also have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. So in the Trinity, there's a council. They get together and they design a will and a purpose that is eternal in nature. And everything that works comes out of that will and that desire that is worked by God. And part of that is that we have been predestined by Him not only to adoption as sons, but the beginning of that verse, we have obtained an inheritance. We're slaves, we're sons, we are inheriting sons. And friend, if you, if you look at this term predestined, it also, like the previous term uh, foreknowledge, carries a connotation of love denoting the favor and grace and kindness of God. He has set His love on you and lavished His love on you. What these two first two terms about our salvation emphasize is that we belong to God because of God's work for for us. We didn't choose Him. We couldn't choose Him. We wouldn't choose Him. He chose us and He brought us to Himself. Now, if you're thinking along with me, some of you, some of you inwardly, you're restraining yourselves quite well, but, but some of you inwardly are cheering. And you're saying, yes, this is, this is the truth that I love. And I, I love the greatness and the majesty of God and the glory of God and the bigness of God. And it makes my heart sing to hear these truths. And others of you are saying, wait, 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 I, this is, this is all really new. And I'm just not sure because I've always been taught that that God loves us, but it was my choice, and I get to choose if I'm going to be a believer in God or not. And, and if this is true, that God has chosen some for salvation, then it must also be that God has chosen others for damnation. And I'm not sure I want to go there. It's, 
It's a truth that is called double predestination, God choosing for heaven and God choosing for hell. Now, Scripture does say that God chooses some to eternal life. But listen carefully. Scripture does not say that God chooses some to eternal damnation. When people go to hell, they go there of their own accord because they are God-rejectors and God-haters who want their sin rather than God and Christ. Keep your finger in Romans. Come back with me to the Gospel of John. Look at John chapter 3. You're familiar with John 3. And just beyond the most famous verse in the Bible, verse 18 says this, John chapter 3, verse 18. This is... This is Jesus speaking. He's been talking to Nicodemus. There's a question in this chapter about where he stops talking to Nicodemus and where where he's speaking more broadly to another group. My guess is that at this point, he's he's broadened it beyond just Nicodemus. But notice what he says, John 3.18. He who believes in him, in Christ, is not judged. So if you trust Christ, there's no judgment. But he who... He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If someone is judged, he is judged, and Jesus says it two times, because he has not believed. We'll see it in just a moment. There's a general calling that goes to all mankind. And those who do not believe who are judged are those who have rejected that calling of God on their life to trust in Him. Their condemnation is solely because of their unbelief. They have rejected God. And and Jesus expands this in verse 20. Why are they judged? Why, Why have they not believed in Christ? For everyone, verse 20, who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his evil deeds will be exposed. He doesn't come to Christ because he wants his sin. He doesn't want his sin exposed. He doesn't want his sin removed. He wants to hang on to his sin, and he goes into condemnation and into judgment because of the sin that he so desperately clings to. Paul will say something similar to what Jesus says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says in verse 12, uh, God will send on them, verse 11, a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. They are judged because they did not believe the truth and they did not believe the truth about Christ because they took pleasure in their wickedness, they wanted their sin. People are condemned not because God has consigned them to hell. People are condemned because they have rejected Christ. And friends, we also need to think rightly about our position when we come into this world. We do not come into this world morally neutral towards God. We come into this world under condemnation, under wrath, and haters of God. And then everything we do demonstrates that we hate God. And so out of this mass of humanity that includes every man who was created or born apart from Christ, everyone is a God-rejector rightly destined for hell. And from those, 
from those who are already headed towards hell of their own volition and choice and nature, God plucks out some in predestination and foreknowledge. That doesn't mean that he has predestined others. They're already going to hell. And from, the, from others, and we're going to see this in a glorious way in chapter 9. I can't wait to get to verses 23 and 24. We're going to see this played out in a dramatic way that God plucks us out to demonstrate the greatness of his grace and the greatness of his glory. God has predestined us to salvation. God has foreknown us to salvation. Thirdly, God has called us to salvation. The first two terms are really God's action for us in relation to salvation in in eternity past. The the next three terms are all terms that relate to our salvation in the present. This is, this is what we're already experiencing. This is, this is God's working in time and place and history to bring about our salvation. Notice verse 30. He says, And these whom He predestined, picking up the verb from verse 29, these whom He predestined, He also called to salvation. And as we noted last week, there's, there's a general call outwardly to all men everywhere that they must repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So all men are are called in a broad, general, outward sense. Um, So Jesus, for instance, says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Everyone needs to come to Jesus Christ. Christ calls them to come to him. And then, in addition to that, all men are called generally and broadly. Secondly, there's another kind of call that's an inward, specific call that compels those who receive it to repent and believe. So so God specifically sets His voice and His mind and His command on some and draws them into salvation. We see this, for instance, in chapter 4 of the book of Romans. Chapter 4, speaking about Abraham, it says in verse 17... As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you in the presence of him whom he, Abraham, believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So so a man is dead spiritually and God calls, God quickens him, God draws him, God compels him inwardly to respond to God in faith. Chapter 4, verse 17, we see something similar in chapter 9, verse 25. As he, God, also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. So there's a people that didn't belong to me, and I called them, I drew them, I wooed them, I loved them, and they came to me, and they became my people. Um. One more verse just out of First Peter chapter 5, and we see this all throughout the New Testament, this kind of calling. But First Peter chapter 5 verse 10 makes it explicit. After you have suffered for a little while, he says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So God called you, God drew you, you responded, and then God will perfect that response, perfect your salvation, confirm your salvation, strengthen your salvation, establish you in that salvation. Uh, 
This is, this is a call that cannot be resisted. It is a gracious and compelling call. It is, it is a call that lovingly draws us in. We, we who didn't love God have been overwhelmed by His love for us. So it's not as if we're going into the kingdom kicking and screaming, I don't want to be a Christian. No. God works in our hearts in such a way that we say, I hate my sin. What will I ever do? And God reveals Himself to us in Jesus Christ. And we say, I have a Savior. Let me come to Him. He calls us and compels us powerfully. I want you to notice something else about this verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And notice the pronouns. Those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Verse 30, And those whom He predestined, He called. And these He called, He justified. And these, again the pronoun, whom He justified, He glorified. Whoever starts in that process finishes the process. When He says those, verse 29, these, verse 30, He means these and only these. But not just only these, but all of these. So in order to get to glorification at the end, you have to start at the foreknowledge of God. But anyone and everyone who starts at foreknowledge will be seen through in an unbroken chain of events that will produce and secure your salvation. Oh friend, this is this is a truth that should bring great comfort and great encouragement and great assurance to your heart. Our calling is on the basis of grace and not merit. And that also means that we are being kept by grace and not by our merit. And in my house, in my life, that's great news. Because I am still not meritorious. But Christ is. And He keeps me. We are secure because God is infinitely power to call us to Himself and keep us in himself. Are you struggling with assurance of your salvation? Oh friend, here is your confidence. You are kept in your salvation by the one who called you. It is not the strength of your works or your faith that keeps you. It is the infinite strength of Christ who worked for you and called you that keeps you. And if you have responded to his call, you are in Christ and you are safe. But this, this little chain of pronouns is also a reminder that you must be in that chain in order to get the salvation. And if you are not in Christ, you are hopeless without Him. You, you must turn to Him. You must hear the general call to repent and believe in Christ alone as your Savior. You, you must turn away from your sin. You must embrace Christ as your Savior. There is no life except by trusting in Christ as your Savior. And friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I compel you. The, the offer is here. The call has been made. And you need to respond in faith to that call even this morning. And trust in Christ alone to forgive you of your sin, to wash away the power of sin, cleanse you so that you can live in a righteous way before Him. If you do not believe, would you believe 
this morning. There's a fourth truth about this um, salvation that God has given us. It's given to us in the middle of verse 30. We've seen this word before in the book of Romans. Those whom He has called, He has also justified. We won't belabor the point because we spent many sermons in chapters 3 and 4 thinking about justification. As we think about justification, we're simply thinking about two things. My sin is imputed and accounted to Christ. So He gets my sin. He gets the penalty of my sin. He gets God's wrath poured out on Him for my sin. And when I believe in Him and when He justifies me and when He declares me to be righteous, I get His righteousness. I, I, get, I get His life. God treats me as if I had done everything that Christ ever did in obedience to Him. He gets my sin. I get His righteousness. That's the declaration that is made in justification. And what I want you to notice particularly here is that this is a completed act. Those whom He called, He also justified, past tense. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we have already been declared righteous. Even though that righteousness is not yet finished, the flesh still hangs on, right? You still wrestle with sin. You still battle against sin. And yet God looks at you if you're in Christ and all He sees is Christ. He doesn't see your sin. The sin has been atoned for. The sin has been washed away. The sin has been removed. You are in Christ and He sees only the righteousness of Christ hanging over your life. And this, my friend, is a completed thought in the mind of God. This is a completed action in the mind of God. And again, with all these other actions in these verses, it's not what we have done for God, but this is, this is God's work on our behalf. This is not our salvation for ourselves. This is God's salvation for us. There's one last reality about our salvation given to us in this verse, and it is that God has glorified us in salvation. These whom He justified, He also glorified. When he speaks about glorification, he's talking about the complete fulfillment of our salvation and our entrance into glory. He's talking about that thing, that place that we long for, to be united to Christ, to have sin removed, to be in heaven, and to have every entanglement of our fleshly bodies removed from us. And remember what he said at the beginning of chapter, or in the middle of chapter 8, verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, I can't wait to get to glory. I'm just so sick of this body. I'm, I'm sick of its weaknesses and its frailties and I'm sick of its sin and I can't wait to get to glory and experience what he's promised. And he says, if you are in Christ, verse 30, he's also glorified you. This is the longing that we have, the longing to have glory. Second Corinthians chapter two, verse four, uh, chapter, second Corinthians chapter four, verse 17 says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. All this stuff that I have here that feels so heavy, it'll be light when I get to glory. I can't wait. First Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, I write so that you will walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. We get to go to His kingdom, His rulership, His reign, His place where He is and experience His glory. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Jesus Christ, and with it eternal glory. 1 Peter chapter 4, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. I get glory and I cannot wait. Now, did you notice something about this verse? He foreknew. He predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. Past tense. Now, you're looking up here and I'm looking out there and I'm not seeing a lot of glory. And you aren't either. But friend, in the mind of God... This is so sure. He says it's in the past. The one who is transcendent over time sees our future glorification as if we are already there with Him. He looks at our future glorification with the same confidence and the same assurance that we look back at the past at events that happened yesterday or ten years ago or a hundred years ago. And the clarity with which we see those events, He sees our future glorification. We are secure because He is going to keep us in this salvation and He will finish this salvation that He has granted to us. Now here's a, here's a connection I want you to see to what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about we know that God causes all things to work together for good. There, there are things in your life that are hard, aren't there? There are things in your life that aren't easy. There, there are things in your life that are not completely pleasant. And God would have us to know through Paul's pen and he would have us to meditate on the fact that all the circumstances are not of our lives are not only working for our good. Hear me, all the circumstances of our lives cannot keep us from experiencing the glorification that he has promised to us. Nothing in your life, if you are in Christ, will keep you from the end product of glorification. Again, if you are in Christ... No sickness can keep you from glory. No death can keep you from glory. No satanic power can keep you from glory. No broken relationship can keep you from glory. No looming future problem can keep you from glory. No enemy can keep you from glory. No temptation can keep you from glory. Nothing can keep you from glory if you are loved by God through Jesus Christ. And how can I say all that? Because God says it. Verse 37 In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. You don't feel like a conqueror every day, do you? But you are through Him who loved us, who for loved us. So He says, verse 38, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, if you have been loved by God in eternity past and He has brought you to salvation, your end 
is secure. You're safe. This morning, I want you to consider your salvation. I want you to to look back, even as far back as the eternal past, and see what God has done in your salvation. We are drawn by Paul to look into the present and to see what he is even now doing in our salvation to secure us and keep us in him. And then we are to look into the future at what lies ahead and in all these links of the great chain of salvation, we are safe. We're kept by him. To paraphrase one commentator, if we are in Christ, we have been foreordained and foreloved by God. We have been prepared and predestined for salvation, presently loved and called into righteous fellowship with Christ and prepared for a certain soon-to-be glory. What hope we have in our salvation. What hope we have in God's golden chain of salvation. This is God's salvation for us. To Him be the glory. Our Father, we thank You for the richness of this salvation that You have given to us. We would have never chosen it, but You have granted it to us, and we are alive because of it. Oh, Father, we thank You for such a magnificent salvation. We pray that You would make us to rest in the gloriousness of this salvation and be bold in declaring this salvation to those who need to hear it. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.